1 Samuel, we're going to chapter 6. Uh, we're going to actually read it at the beginning of chapter 7. But for the last three weeks, we've been in this story of the ark. And we actually come to the end of it with chapter 6 and as we transition into chapter 7. Uh, as you know, we noticed Samuel has been strikingly absent so far from the last few chapters. He finally reemerges and makes an appearance here at the beginning of chapter 7. We'll read it today, but it'll really sort of carry us into next week as we look at chapter 7. But just briefly to sort of catch us all back up to speed, I think it'll be important as we read the passage. Uh, if you remember all the way back where we started with the story in chapter 4, uh, the Israelites were attacked by the Philistines and lost a decisive battle. Many were killed. They go back to Shiloh and decide that what they really needed is they needed the ark in the battle, probably remembering times like Jericho where the ark led them around the city and the walls fell, the miracles. So they haul the ark out of the temple, the tabernacle, and take it into the battle lines. We described what they were doing as objectification. God being made an object that they could leverage and use for their agenda. It results in an even worse defeat than the first one. Many thousands more are captured. The ark is captured. Eli, the high priest, and both of his sons die in the process. We read that Eli, on finding out the news, falls over backwards, pulled off by his weight, this play on words that we've seen over and over in the chapters, full of his own glory, he falls over and dies. Israel has been robbing God of glory by trying to work this magic, this objectification, by using him for their own agenda and their own goals. The next chapter told the story of the Philistines, who think, obviously, having just beaten the Israelites and taken their ark, the Philistines come to the conclusion that this victory must, be, must mean the victory of their God over Israel's God. So they take the ark and set it up in the statue before it of Dagon in their temple, and they put the ark there as a kind of trophy of their victory. And the next morning, the priests wake up and go in and find Dagon, this giant carved stone statue, tipped over face down before the ark. They panic and prop the idol back up and hope not too many people notice. The next day, they go back in and find it once more, fallen on its face, but this time, its head and both of its hands broken off in the process of falling. About that same time, disease starts breaking out across the city, probably from an infestation of rats or rodents. The Philistines decide they need to get rid of the ark because it's causing mayhem. So they start passing it off between these Philistine cities. Everywhere the ark goes, the same disease, the same calamities break out. At one point, even some sort of a violent riot as the people of the Philistines protest the ark coming to their town. We summed up the story by saying God will be worshipped. He will have his glory, even if it means rocks crying out and worshipping him. God will be glorified, was the message last week. The Philistines had underestimated God's power, and the whole phrase gets summed up in their recognition. The Lord's hand was heavy. Again, this wordplay, heavy. The glory was heavy on them. They felt the glory and decided the ark had to be getting, gotten rid of. So that takes us to this point, chapter 6. And the story picks up with the Philistines and their plan to finally get rid of this ark that's causing all of the calamity and all of the problems across all of their cities. So let's read it. We're going to read chapter 6 and then just through the first four verses of chapter 7. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called on the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice. 
according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plagues was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he has dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this to us, this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not. His hand that struck us, it happens to us by coincidence. The men did so. They took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. The cows went straight to the direction of Beth Shemesh, along the one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split, they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the gold figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the gold mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people, the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So then we'll read the first four verses of chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abimadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you were returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bowels, and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. 
I want to do a couple things with the story. It kind of wraps up. It's a long passage, but wraps up this arc narrative we've been in the middle of. So what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes to pull out a big theme that's actually been going on through all of these chapters, but it's one I haven't really drawn your attention to yet. And then after we do that, it'll help us draw out a couple of conclusions about what are we supposed to do with a strange story of a cart with gold tumors and gold rats. Don't even know quite what that is. We'll deal with it. What are we supposed to take away from a passage like this? Uh, if you've paid close attention over the last few weeks, the last three chapters, the Philistines in particular keep pulling up a theme that we haven't mentioned yet. We've talked about this wordplay on heaviness and glory, but there's a theme that keeps popping up across the story that we haven't really mentioned. Multiple times, it's the Philistines who keep drawing parallels between this story of the Ark and the story of the Exodus. Uh, it's actually pretty surprising when you stop and think about it. The Philistines are the ones who keep seeing the parallels throughout the story. They keep seeing things unfold and recognize in them, hold on a second, this is a lot like what we heard about Israel and their exodus from Egypt. It reminds us of that. Israel doesn't ever seem to be aware of it. Every time it gets pulled out and highlighted in the story, it's always the words of the Philistines who point out the parallels. But the pagan Philistines, they end up seeing more in touch with Israel's history and how God is working that history now amongst his people than Israel actually ever seems at any point in the story. Uh, let me show you a couple examples of it. So if you've got your Bibles open, flip back to uh, chapter 4 real quick because it's explicitly stated in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. This is when the battle, has the first defeat of Israel has happened. And the Israelites go and get the ark and they're bringing the ark back into the camp for this second battle with the Philistines. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, this is verse 7, a god has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Pretty remarkable. The Philistines are the ones who remember the history of what God had done, although they're a little off, the gods, right? They don't really know this god. They remember enough to know these are the people, and their God is the ones who worked the deliverance and all of the plagues amongst the Egyptians. And then back to chapter 6, where we just were. It gets stated explicitly again. You might have rem remembered reading it from the passage. Uh, there seems to be some sort of minor protest about giving the ark back and all of this gold. And the Philistine sorcerers, their spiritual leaders, say, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians? And Pharaoh hardened their hearts. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Right? So they find all of their emphasis for returning the ark by drawing a parallel to, don't you remember what happened when Pharaoh dug his hills in and hardened his heart? Things only got worse. Don't make the same mistake. Keep a soft heart. Let's return the ark back to the Israelites. So a couple places that it pops up pretty explicitly in the words of the Philistines. But it actually also happens all sorts of places in subtle ways that all the commentators, the theologians, find and pull out for us to recognize. Think about some of these. The ark is carried off and held captive in an enemy land. A lot like Israel was held captive in the enemy land of Egypt. The ark ends up in its time there undermining the power of the gods. If you remember our stories about the Exodus, most of the plagues weren't just sort of random ways that God could get revenge. They're direct assaults on all of the gods and the powers of the Egyptian gods. When the ark is finally sent out, they send it out with gold. They load up full of treasure and sacrifices and send the ark on its way. You might remember from the story of the Exodus, before the people of Israel left, all the Egyptians gave to them gold and silver and offerings to take with them as they went out to make their sacrifices. 
But there's another parallel uh, with this consistent repetition of the Hebrew word we've talked about over and over, right? Kavod, this heaviness or the glory of God. The same image of glory shows up in one of the most important points in the story of the Exodus. Uh, do you remember after Israel has left and they're on their way and God intentionally stops them and has them camp at the Red Sea? And most people probably realize that's putting us in a vulnerable spot. They recognize this wasn't a good place for them to stop. They needed to keep moving. But God tells Moses to camp there because Pharaoh is going to change his mind and God is about to work a moment of deliverance that he wants his people to see. He actually says it in Exodus 14. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And listen, I will get glory, this is our word again, that same Hebrew word, over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, we made it pretty obvious last week, but it seems to be this moment in the Exodus, the same thing that's been playing out with the Philistines. God would show his glory, as we saw it last week, his hand would be heavy upon Pharaoh until all the Egyptians understood who was Lord seems to be exactly what has played out with the Ark and the Philistines. His hand would be heavy upon the Philistines until all of the Philistines realized that God was the one to be glorified, not Dagon, and that he alone was Lord. So why all the references? What are these parallels doing between the Exodus and the story of the Ark? Well, the Exodus story is about God getting glory over Pharaoh, but there's something bigger going on in what the Exodus was and what it meant for the Israelite people. The Exodus story is about God delivering and forming Israel as his people. The Exodus, for all Jews, they looked back on this story as the story that defined who they were as a people. They had a God who hadn't just called them to obedience. They had a God who had come down and personally involved himself, rescued and delivered them, saved them, led them out into the wilderness, called them into a privileged position, given them his law as a way of relating and worshiping him. The Exodus was a story about God personally involving himself in forming and saving a people. So why does it keep showing up here as a parallel in 1 Samuel? Uh, there's this great little book on 1 Samuel, a commentary I've been reading by Peter Lahart, is the guy's name. And he says this about this parallel, this connection with the Exodus. He says, The story of the Ark is like the story of Exodus in a number of ways, but there's also an important difference. In the Exodus, Israel was in captivity in Egypt. But in Deuteronomy, Moses warned Israel that they will be driven out of the land if they don't obey the Lord. Yet Israel is not being driven out from the land. Instead, the ark, the symbol of the Lord's presence in Israel, leaves. The ark is exiled. The Lord himself takes on the curse of the covenant. He goes into exile in place of his sinful people. And while he is in exile, he defeats Israel's enemy and offers a path of salvation. Here's what's so fascinating about these connections between Exodus and 1 Samuel. When you first read this chapter, as I could even see some of you when I read this section, uh, when you get done, I see this when I read really hard verses. I can see it in your eyes. People are saying, okay, let's see how you turn this into a sermon, right? Because sometimes these get really strange. And all three of these chapters have sort of been this way. You read this, you close your Bible, and you say, pretty much these three stories seem to be God laying waste to anyone and everything that gets in his path. Chapter after chapter, God destroying towns, killing people, sickness breaking out, death amongst everyone. Israel's decimated in battle. The holy city of Shiloh is delegitimized. It's no longer where the ark resides. A high priest dies. The sons die. The son's wife dies. They end up naming the son Ichabod. The glory is gone. 
The whole city ends up crying out, and after all, the ark, this prized possession, this symbol of God's presence amongst his people, is hauled off to the Philistines, and things don't get much better once it gets to the Philistines. The Philistine city starts suffering from plagues and crying out and turning on each other, and violence breaks out and death. You read these three chapters and you think, God is just wreaking havoc everywhere that he goes. You read all of this and you say, man, what are we supposed to take away from these three chapters of God laying waste to everyone and everything that seems to cross his path? But Lahark, this commentator, says, no, 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 you're missing the point of what God is doing in these three chapters. God is working another exodus. It seems to be the point of this story. He isn't letting his people go into captivity. He isn't letting his people be hauled off for disobedience. God is taking their place. He is going into the enemy's camp. He is allowing his ark to be carried off. And here he comes in chapter 6, riding out of Philistia with offerings of gold, the enemies, glorifying and calling him Lord. You can't help but catch the irony of this picture. A cart and two cows pulling the ark back home without a single person, a single driver in control of any of it. This is a story about God saving his people. And I want to show that to you in an important way. The parallels with the Exodus are so strong because God is once again delivering Israel and saving them. But there's a massive difference here between the Exodus. I'm convinced that the salvation God is working for Israel is not primarily from the Philistines. God's goal is not just to defeat the Philistines and make Israel safer. The salvation that he's working this time isn't delivering his people out of an enemy's hands. He's calling them out as a people again, but he's doing it. He's saving them from themselves. There's no Pharaoh this time that holds them in bondage. There's no Philistine king who rules over them. It's their own hearts, the hardness of their own hearts, that have caused them to be held captive, to objectify God, and lose this privileged status of being God's people. So God goes back to work, rescuing his people, saving his people, delivering his people, but this time saving them from themselves, saving them from their own hard hearts. We've seen this now for the last few weeks. Israel was completely unaware of how long and slow this path had been of their walking away from God, of objectifying him, using him. Throughout the book of Judges and into this beginning section of 1 Samuel, catch, this is one of those really important times to piece together this big narrative that's going on throughout the Bible. What's happening here is one of these points in the storyline that connects so much that's come before it. Everything through Judges and on into the beginning of Samuel tells the story of Israel as God's people in the process of unraveling. They had turned on one another, tribe against tribe, civil wars breaking out at the end of Judges. Tribes had forfeited their promised land and gone looking for better places to live, even though that land had been given to them, designated by God. They were constantly obsessed and dominated by the pagan neighbors like the Philistines and their gods. Worship, when it did rarely happen at places like Shiloh, was full of personal ambition and sacrilege. Worship of God was being pushed out by the worship of all of the other gods of the Philistines and the cultures around them. Shiloh, its high priest, was a joke. It was an offense to what God was actually looking for in worship. With Israel's final act of carrying the ark into battle and using the most significant image of God's presence in their midst... They had kind of finalized this long history of true faith and truly becoming God's people, fizzling out, true worship, true identity, becoming nothing more than an idea, a word, never actually taking God seriously or holding on to the reality of him amongst his people. Israel, when we reach this point in 1 Samuel, stretching back over many other books, 
in many ways no longer were God's people, at least not by any evidence of their own behavior or the worship that they were giving. And worst of all, none of them recognized that this process of unraveling was even taking place. They still imagined themselves the carriers of the ark, the people with God at their side. But all along, slowly, they had been walking away from him. Israel, at this point in 1 Samuel, needed to be rescued, delivered, saved, called back into a people and reformed. But they needed to be saved from their own hearts, the hardness, the indifference that had slowly been unraveling their identity as God's people. This story seems to be saying something like, there's about to be another exodus in Israel's history. It's no small thing. That's why it's so important to sort of pause and pull out this big narrative theme. That seems to be what this parallel is pointing at. God is once again going to rescue Israel, to form them as a people, to soften their hearts and create an environment for repentance and turning back to him, that his people might be restored and not lost. Uh, I think it's really important to sort of square this up in your mind as we move into the beginning of Samuel, because if you don't, you end up sort of misreading the story. You read these, this passage and think, what in the world is going on? This is strange and destructive. And you turn the page, thank goodness, we're finally back to Samuel, a story I can understand, and David. But this, what's happened here in these last three verses is massively important for understanding what's to come. God is not out of control or enraged, knocking down anything that gets in his path. What God has done in these last three chapters is rolled up his sleeves. He's decided to get back involved and involve himself in reforming this people and saving them from themselves. God is on a rescue mission to restore Israel. He's not going to sit around and watch Israel implode. He's going to involve himself, even at his own expense, his own sacrifice, to redeem and save this people. All of that's important because the day the Israelite farmers stood in those fields harvesting wheat and looked up and saw the ark miraculously riding home all on its own, these two cows pulling this cart, riding up to them, they should have all realized that God had not indeed abandoned us. God's glory had never actually been gone. They should have been moved to a kind of repentance that recognized who they were as a people must forever be changed by this God who is willing to involve himself so deeply in saving and delivering his people. This God who defeats their enemies and bears their punishments and comes riding home to restore their identity. Repentance. That's what chapter 6 is really all about. Once again, Israel doesn't seem to understand it. Repent. Repentance. A turning. Okay, so let's walk through the story real quickly. Uh, it's a side note, but that theme of God working in an exodus is a really important one for you to sort of lock in your brain before we move to next week, where Samuel begins to call the people to this moment of repentance. But to chapter 6, the Philistines, we read in the story, come up with a plan. They're going to send the ark back to Israel, which is amazing enough in itself, right? This prized thing they had taken in victory. They're ready to just send it back and give it back to the Israelites. Uh, there may have been some protest in the story because, as we pointed out already, the sorcerers remind the Philistines, don't harden your heart as Pharaoh did, but send it back. When Pharaoh dug in his heels, things only got worse for his people. Let's make sure that doesn't happen here. As a really small side note, I don't have time to spend on it. But this word Pharaoh hardened his heart, big surprise. This is actually our same Hebrew word. It actually says his heart became heavy. He made his heart heavy. The idea is something like his heart became dense. But once again, it's this play on this idea of how will God be glorified. That's all I have time to say. So they pull together, these Philistines, all of their gold, and they end up out of the gold casting five images of tumors 
and apparently a whole lot of images of rodents or rats and mice, one for all of the cities, whether it was fortified or small or not. So probably a whole case full of these golden rats and whatever in the world a golden tumor is. Uh, no one has any idea. I tried. I read all my commentaries. I looked online. No one has any idea what this golden tumor looked like. It probably was just some piece of gold meant to represent what these tumors were. The idea is it's a kind of superstition, right? If they give back the thing that they have, but they do it in a costly sacrifice, they make the image out of gold that costs them, then it somehow undoes this magic or this curse that's against them. It's their futile attempt to try to undo what they've brought on themselves. It's interesting, though, because it actually says that what they were offering was a guilt offering. They recognized that they had done something that had offended this God of Israel, and they were desperately trying to find ways to undo it. The number five represented these five major cities, and then all of these rodent statues for all of the other cities. It's interesting because what the Philistines are offering, this sacrifice, literally this guilt offering, obviously tips their hand to recognizing that they weren't just getting rid of God. They were recognizing that they had done something to offend this God. Not only is God showing himself victorious over their God, Dagon, he's riding away with all of their riches, them providing sacrifices, offering to him to deal with their guilt. That's a pretty remarkable picture that God has worked just as a golden box within their cities. No prophet, no preacher. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to have a preacher, just a box set there, and all of a sudden everyone understood, repent, guilt, right? God works a pretty miraculous deal right in the middle of these Philistine cities. But don't read too much into it. The sacrifice seems to be a way more than anything else to get rid of God. But God is able to get sacrifices even from the pagan people of the Philistines. The Philistines also work, it's kind of interesting, a little bit of a side plan into the story. So they come up with this idea. We'll take two cows, cows that are producing milk that have calves, and we'll hook them up to a cart, a cart that they've never pulled before, never been yoked, and then we'll tie their calves up at home and send them off down the road. The idea would be this. What would be natural for these cows to do would be to buck underneath a yoke they have no experience wearing and to try as quickly as possible return to return to the calves that they're currently in the process of nursing. The Philistines say that this little test is a way for them to determine if those cows move directly towards Israelite territory, then we'll know that it is God's presence that is driving them there. But if those two cows return home to the calves they're nursing, then we'll know that all of this sickness and all of these rats must be a kind of coincidence must not actually be the power of God. I wonder what they thought as they watched letting the cows loose and the cows made a beeline, happy as could be, lowing, it says, straight to the closest Israelite city possible. They never turned back. They never second-guessed. It was, seemed pretty obvious God was directing the cart, his ark, finally on its return home. As first things seem to go well when it finally reaches the Israelite territory. We know a little bit about this town, Beth Shemesh. Um, it actually gets mentioned back in Joshua chapter 21, which is where all of the land and the cities are getting, um, by Joshua, are getting distributed according to the tribes. And there's a set of cities. So most of the tribes received portions of land from this place to this place, from this place to this place. So you saw boundaries. But the Levites, these priestly tribes, actually got distributed a set of cities. And we read in Joshua 21 that one of the cities that was to become a priestly city was this city of Beth Shemesh. It wasn't a huge place, but it was inhabited by the descendants of Aaron, people who had been trained and raised up as priests. 
Now, it's not that every single person in the city was working full-time as a priest. Even these were at that day out gathering grain, harvesting at wheat time. But we do know that they would have at least been trained in what it meant to be a priest. Part of their identity that they had grown up in this city is a certain attention and a certain focus they had inherited from their lineage of paying attention to God. So it's interesting, the Ark finds itself first coming into the town of a city full of priests who if anyone in Israel should have been prepared to know what to do with the Ark, it would have been them, this priestly city. So what do they do? We read in the passage, they make a sacrifice. They take the wooden cart and cut it up and build a fire, and they sacrifice the two cows on top of the fire. And then they worship. They set the ark and all of these gold statues up on a great big stone in the middle of the field, and they start bringing other sacrifices to it and worshiping. Then we're shocked to read verse 19. It really does sort of come out of nowhere. You sort of read it and then reread it a second time because you didn't see it coming. Verse 19 says, And he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, Everything seems to be going so well. The ark is back. They're worshiping and sacrificing. Verse 19, God kills 70 more people. (laughs) We're back to this idea of God weighing lace to everyone. What in the world? Finally, it's back and they're worshiping. What does God have wrong with what's taking place? And the phrase makes it even harder. The ESV, if you're reading it, translates it um, something like they looked upon the ark. Some of the translations will take that farther and say they looked in the ark, as if maybe they opened it up and looked at what was inside. Either way, I think the picture starts to come together a little bit better as you read verse 20, their response to the death of these 70 men in this priestly city. We read, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Obviously, a question they would ask, 70 of them having just been struck dead. And to whom shall he go up away from us? It's really interesting the way they respond because it looks the exact same way that the Philistines responded. They recognize that this ark is dangerous, and they immediately look for a way to get rid of it. Who can we now send this to? Who could possibly stand before this ark? Who can we send the ark to to take care of? They realize that holding on to this ark is dangerous. So, the question, why did it cost them their lives? Uh, I don't think it was what they did, the sacrifice and the worship, the joy they felt at seeing the ark. I think the thing that cost them their lives was what didn't happen that day when they received the ark back. I've tried really hard, because I realize this is a strange passage, I've tried really hard this week to figure out the best words to give this, or the way to explain it. And I think this is probably the best way to put it. Israel should have been asking, who can stand in his presence? This question they ask after 70 of them are killed. They should have been asking that question from the very beginning of the story. When they first took the ark out of Shiloh and carried it into battle, they should have been asking themselves, who can stand and bear this ark in its presence? They should have asked it for sure when the ark came rolling back into their fields on a cart. Who can stand before this ark? The only obvious question to that answer to that question is that no one can, which should have been followed up by the request, God, if none of us can stand in the presence of this ark, then save us, help us, deliver us. Instead, when they ask the question, who can stand in your presence, they immediately decide no one, so send it off to someone else, instead of falling on their face and saying, our only hope is if you deliver us and save us and rescue us. The question, who can stand in God's presence, should have caused their hearts and their lives to start breaking apart. It should have caused their hearts to begin to soften. Who can stand in God's presence? No one. God, we need you 
to deliver us. Repentance. But the Israelites at Beth Shemesh end up doing exactly what the Philistines did when they felt the weight of God's glory. They buckle under it and pass it on to the next guy and hope he can figure out a way to deal with it. The Israelites were excited to see the ark back in their possession, but it never breaks them into repentance for why they lost the ark in the first place. They end up looking just as clueless in the ark's presence as they did at the very beginning of the story. Who can stand before God? The ark ends up going into a kind of hiding. It gets put in a home, covered up, one man protects it for some 20 years until eventually David will pull it out. All Israel laments before the Lord. They cry, upset and devastated, is how the story ends. Here's the first thing I want you to see, and I actually think it's a pretty shocking one if you'll take the time to see it. The Philistines have come to understand that they can't harden their hearts. They can't cause themselves to be defiant against God. They have to give it back. They have to respond. They can't stand in his presence. They have to acknowledge him as Lord. They've been beaten. The Philistines get it, right? They don't harden their hearts, but instead they give up all their gold and send it back to Israel. It's the worshiping Israelites who don't see the risk of their own hard hearts in the story. Here's how I want to put it. Uh, it's actually a pretty shocking thing, but I think it's what the story says. You can be worshiping and sacrificing and celebrating God and the whole time have a heart that is getting harder and harder in the midst of all the worship and all the sacrifice. This whole story has been about how Israel was just as guilty as the Philistines. The story is so surprising because it looks like Israel's heart might actually have been more hard than the Philistines, who at least recognize this God is to be glorified, he is Lord. Even as they worship, even as they sacrifice, even as they celebrate the ark finally back amongst us, we see that their heart never breaks, never cracks, never seems to actually change from the very beginning of the story. This portion of 1 Samuel seems to be suggesting something like this to us. There are two ways we go about hardening our hearts. The first one, rebellion, that's the obvious one, the one we all think of, Pharaoh digging in his heels. But the second way that we go about hardening our hearts is this kind of religious practice without true repentance. Sacrificing, worshiping, offering, doing all of the right things from God, and never having it break in and soften our heart. The closer you look at Israel's worship that day, the more you start to recognize how flimsy it might have actually been. This sacrifice of the cart and the cows, well, it didn't really cost them too much, considering the thing just rode up on them. It was nobody's possession that was lost. And then they set the ark and all of its gold objects up on a big rock and start making more sacrifices to it. They start worshiping and celebrating, full of joy and excitement. They have just witnessed something miraculous and unbelievable. How could that be a wrong reaction? But not one person stops and says, what is God trying to show us by this miracle? Not one person says, hold on a second. Do you remember why we lost the ark to begin with? We need forgiveness. Turns out nobody's repented of why that happened in the first place. Now one person says, we better repent before we welcome this thing back home. If that ark comes home, we can't be the same people that we were on the day that we lost it. They see the ark, and what they do is they start partying. They're excited about it, worshiping. Uh, with this Exodus parallel running, you can't help but in this moment sort of think back to a time in the Exodus story that seems to be pretty obviously similar. Israel just came over the Red Sea, delivered from, from Pharaoh and his armies, and what did they do? Do you remember? Uh, it wasn't the priestly city, it was the priest, Aaron, who takes all of the gold and carves an image out of it and puts it in the middle of them, and everyone starts celebrating, calling it God. It wasn't a pagan God, they were celebrating God, but they were doing it 
by a big statue, celebrating around it, sacrificing and worshiping, the whole time not actually recognizing what now has to change because of this God and this Exodus who has just delivered you. Here too, the Israelites go about worshiping and celebrating, never stopping to recognize that if this God has just delivered us, this new Exodus, then something must change. Their hearts are more dense than the Philistines because they assume so quickly that they know exactly what to do and what God is doing. How they imagine their religion working has actually kept them from recognizing what God is really doing and what God is really trying to show them. Uh, it'll take the weight of death, 70 more of them, for them to finally stop and start asking the right question. How are we actually supposed to live with this God? Who can stand in his presence? How do we respond to this God who's so full of glory and so holy? It says to us, you can actually be hardening your heart while you're worshiping and while you're sacrificing to God. That's no small point. Uh, it forces us to ask much deeper questions about what repentance actually is. And even with all of our religious duties, our religious offerings, are our hearts actually repentant at all? Or does all of this religion just begin to obscure the hardness that continues to build in our hearts? Let me give you a really interesting example of it from history, a little illustration. Uh, in October, so we'll get a little history lesson as well. Glow will appreciate this if no one else I know. Uh, in October, it's the 500th anniversary of, anybody know? Glow, do you know what this October? It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So Martin Luther beginning the Reformation. So Reformation Day, the 31st of October. Uh, it all gets kicked off, Reformation, with, you'll probably hear about it throughout the year because it's kind of a big deal. It's a milestone even in Western civilization culture. Uh, it all gets started by Martin Luther 500 years ago, October 31st, by him nailing what's called the 95 Thesis, which is just a way of saying 95 statements, uh, on a piece of paper to a church door in Wittenberg. It's really, it, what those 95 statements were is they they were statements he wanted to make about the current condition of the church and what the church needed. It's interesting because the very first, he writes 95 of them, which is pretty impressive, right? So it's not just like 13, 10 commandments, no, 95 statements he would like to say about the church and he nails them to a door. They had more time on their hands, I guess, to sit around and read 95 statements. But the very first statement of the whole list of 95 is this one. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The very first statement of the entire Reformation that kicks off is Luther saying the entire life of a believer is a life of repentance. All of life is repentance. Uh, that's worth putting in your notes if you haven't written it down because you may have some questions this week on it. But what does it mean for my entire life to be a life of repentance? Luther was saying this because he found himself in a culture that did massive amounts of worship and massive amounts of sacrificing. The whole culture considered itself to be Christian, and everything in their lives were shaped around the place of the church and the offerings and the worship that they offered. Massive amounts of it. They pretty much thought that they had religion figured out and exactly how you went about praying to God, serving God, receiving salvation, the works that were required. Luther says, I'm putting a little bit of words in Luther's mouth, but he says, we need our hearts to be softened. We've become so dense, so hard in our religion, in our performances, that no one seems to be asking, what is God actually doing? What Luther says that kicks off the Reformation is the simple idea, we need to be saved again. We need repentance we need a turning towards God that restores who we are as God's people and who we are as the church. 
Luther's idea of repentance is not a small idea because it builds out into this massive movement of coming back to God and trying to reestablish how do we as a church and God's people relate to God on his terms. Repentant, turning, hearts softened. Luther desperately wanted the church to realize that repentance was not something you did at the beginning to get into salvation. I heard a great sermon at one point in my life. I repented over my sins. I became a Christian. Repenting is now done. Instead, he says, repentance is the entire life of how we make progress as a believer. We live a life of repentance, constantly turning our attention to God. Uh, one historian writes this about Luther's suggestion. On the surface, it looks, like, it looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying Christians will never make much progress in life and will constantly be repenting. That, of course, wasn't Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance is the best way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Consider how the gospel affects and transforms the act of repentance. In religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. This means that religious repentance is selfish and self-righteous and bitter all the way to the bottom. But in the gospel... The purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of the relationship and union we have with Christ as a way of beginning to weaken our impulses to do anything that would be contrary to God's heart. Uh, for an excited group of Israelites receiving the ark back and watching it ride back into their presence, for as genuine as those sacrifices and the worship and the excitement must have been as they saw the ark come riding back home. If Israel didn't recover a heart of deep repentance, of deep humility, then they had gained nothing from all of this story over the last three chapters of God at work amongst his people. If they celebrated the ark without having learned the lesson of repentance, the whole episode had only served to make their hearts harder, not softer, towards God. I don't know if you get that, but that's pretty remarkable. It's remarkable to see the story come to this conclusion. God, indeed, has been working in a pretty dramatic way to try and soften the hearts of his people. And he's gone to some pretty unbelievable lengths to get them to start asking questions that on their own, they never would have begun to ask about their own life. Uh, we can add a second point to it, this first one. Uh, the risk of a hardened heart happens both in rebellion, but also in our religion. And the second one, true worship has to always begin with the act of repentance. True worship always starts with the act of repentance. Uh, repentance is the thing that God has been working towards the entire story. There's actually a place in the psalm. Psalm 51 is a really famous psalm. David's repenting. And he says this line in Psalm 51 that captures it well. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You see what he's saying? David's getting this, right? It's no good how many sacrifices I make or how sacrificial those sacrifices are. The real thing that God is looking for, the real sacrifice that kicks off all of the real sacrifices in worship is a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a softened heart, a repentant disposition. At this point, we need a good definition of what repentance then is. What is repentance, this thing that kicks off the Reformation and David describes as beginning all true worship? Um, Karl Barth is the German theologian I've quoted before from the 30s. He says this. It's a, I'll explain. It's a little awkward, but I think it's a really good picture of what repentance is. He says, to repent, one surely turns here involuntarily to this concept. It does not mean to be liberalized, to become indifferent to what you formerly were, to the former objects of your devotion and the former conduct of your life, but to be horrified by it all. The heights on which I stood are abysmal. 
The assurance in which I lived is lostness. The light that I thought I had was darkness. It is not that nil takes the place of the plus, but the plus itself becomes a minus. Here's what he's saying in that last line. It's not to say that I thought I had worked myself to a 10 in life, and now I have to go back to a zero and start over with Jesus. True repentance is to realize that everything that I thought was a 10 was actually a negative 10. Everything that I had been building and working towards and putting together in my life, I don't just start over in repentance. I come to recognize that it is to be horrified by, ashamed of, that all of that that I had been working towards was actually for wrong against me and against God. Repentance means something like this. It's the realization that I've been headed, heading the wrong direction, and I now need to turn completely around and head in an entirely new direction altogether. A life of repentance, then, embracing this kind of repentance day in and day out as a believer, means that I'm constantly making course directions every day, not just assuming that I've got everything under control, worship, sacrifice, evangelize, pay my tithes. No, no, no. Every day, I check my heart and course correct myself back pushing myself to reconsider what God is doing and how I need to repent and refocus my heart on him. The kind of repentance is actually pretty rare in the world we live in and even in the way most of us practice our own faith. Uh, most of us just don't pay this much attention to do the kind of daily course correction that this life of repentance imagines for us. A lot of Christians, too, sort of come to faith through the presentation of the gospel. It doesn't actually call for this kind of repentance as much as it seems to sort of hold out for us just ways to improve what we had already been improving on. Uh, Jesus actually has this idea of repentance all over the place in the gospel. So John the Baptist comes and says, repent and be baptized. And the very first thing we read about Jesus is Jesus says, he goes into the cities and starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. All of these, these gospel writers seem to have this idea of repentance at their hearts. But we have this common idea that God and salvation exists in some way, repentance being the first act of just beginning to improve or work on what we were already trying to get done in life. Um, I have no doubt that Christ is the only way to experience lasting joy, but we oftentimes pitch, accept Jesus and your life is going to be happier and more joyful. I have no doubt that the gospel is the only way to really understand love or intimacy, but we tend to pitch the gospel as are you lost? Is your heart broken? Do you need love? Do you need to know that you're valuable? Well, accept Jesus, and he'll fill that hole that you've already been working towards. Uh, I think Jesus is our only hope for any significant or lasting healing, but a lot of times we take all of our problems and all of our challenges and say, well, just accept Jesus, and Jesus will fix all those things for you. We have a tendency to view repentance as this first step into God now helping improve all the things that I was already trying to improve or work on on my own. But none of those promises mean anything if we aren't willing to repent of how we've actually been going about doing it and looking for it, looking for those things altogether. That's what God seems to be trying to get across to Israel. True repentance means everything that you've been doing, everything that you've assumed about God, everything that you thought about how this life worked and how you made progress and how you would get there, you recognize is not only wrong, but detestable. You come to actually hate it and despise so much this lie that you've been living about how to live in this world. What 1 Samuel seems to be warning us about is this risk that we take when we've been believers, maybe even for decades, worshiping and sacrificing, that slowly and gradually, without this kind of continual repentance, we begin to harden our hearts and forget what God is actually doing amongst us. The moment we begin to live out of any other idea than repentance, we put ourselves in a grave position hardened hearts, when our religious systems and activities actually begin to obscure us from recognizing 
one that starts making massive assumptions about God and about life. Uh, I know these sermons over the last, these have been kind of old school sermons over the last few weeks. Last week, uh, the glory of God, right? That was a big one. And the week before that, you're using God and robbing him of glory. And this week, this is a little old school, repentance. You better repent or you're going to miss out on everything that God is doing. Uh, This week, what I'm trying to say is this. You are actually in, as sort of old school as this may sound, you're in a very dangerous place if you do experience God start worshiping him and sacrificing him for him and recognize his presence riding into your life, you're in a dangerous place if that experience doesn't actually cause you to start repenting and turning from the life that you've been living. You're at risk because that kind of religious activity without a softened heart of repentance is what turns into the worst forms of self-righteousness, the worst forms of hypocrisy, so much that Jesus was constantly railing against. To experience God... To experience his glory and not walk away with a deep sense of repentance that carries on into all of life actually leaves you in a more dangerous place than if you had never experienced God's glory to begin with. God's glory is a dangerous thing. We don't find ourselves broken and repentant in it. Uh, I actually included the last four verses of chapter 7 because I want to see that Samuel's finally coming back into the story. Take a deep breath. Things are going to start getting better in chapter 7. Uh, But do you know what he does? You just see it from that picture. We're going to look at it in more detail next week. But when Samuel finally calls everyone back together, they're crying and lamenting because everything they thought they had welcomed back seems to be once again a curse. What he does is he pulls Israel together, and the first thing he does is say, you need to repent. Take down your other gods. Change the way you're living. Recognize what this God is asking of you. And then do you know what they do? We'll read it next week. He pulls all of Israel together, and they worship. Repentance. And then it flows into worship. Samuel's recognized all along what Israel needed was not to get the ark back. So much of Israel must have imagined that. If we could get the ark back. Samuel realizes that what Israel needs is not the ark. What they need is a heart of repentance. The passage is a big warning. What you need first in your life is not more of God. What you need is not a better relationship with God. What you need is not more devotion and more sacrifice, and more determination, and more self-discipline. This passage seems to be saying, what you need is a heart that wants less of yourself. A spirit of repentance, a brokenness, a contriteness. Because more of God, and more of worship, and more of discipline, without a broken and contrite, without a repentant heart, can only actually lead to more obscuring of God and more objectification. What Israel needs at this point in their history, more than they need the ark, more than they need to be protected from armies, more than they need cities with developed cultures and places of worship and priests, what Israel needs more than anything else is a heart that comes to God in a sense of brokenness and repentance and says, if you don't deliver us and save us, then nothing else we do will. The more you find to repent of, the more you start to recognize how God has actually been working in your life all along. All the things you had been hoping for and looking for finally begin to show themselves in this spirit, in this heart of repentance. I'll close with this thought. Uh, God's call for us to repent is never actually the first act of the story or the relationship. God doesn't call us to repent and then seeing our repentance says, okay, now I'll roll up my sleeves and get involved and save you. You see it in the story so clearly. God has already dealt with the Philistines. He's brought back the ark with the gold and all of the possessions from Philistia. He's placed and shaped Samuel to be a leader for what comes next in the story. 
God worked for their salvation long before any of the Israelites had a softened heart or came to any moment of repentance. God had already been preparing for it. God, working for their salvation, doesn't get started by them repenting. Repentance is their response to the full realization of everything that God has already been doing for them in the midst of their own sins. As Lewis put it, repentance is not something God demands of you before he's willing to take you back, in which he could let you off the hook if he chose. Repentance is simply a description of what coming back to him is actually like. Repentance is the realization that God has been doing something, working salvation all along, and you have been missing it, overlooking it, objectifying it, a heart too hardened to pay attention and recognize what God was doing. But God has been at work. This pattern of God working while our hearts are blinding us, this pattern of God making a way for his people, the pattern of God taking on his own exile and delivering his people out of it, it's the same story we read in the New Testament of what Jesus accomplished, the story of the Exodus playing itself out throughout Scripture. Jesus, who liked this story, took the place of his people and willingly allowed himself to be captured and mocked and put on display and even executed in the place of the people who actually deserved it. But when the world thought that it had conquered Christ, made Christ a trophy to hang up and put a sign over and mock and jeer, Christ rose resurrected, came riding back in from captivity, back into the lives of his believers and the people that he was calling out and shaping. He conquered and mocked death and Satan and came riding back into life, resurrection. The path of the ark is actually the path of Christ, going into exile for his people, defeating its enemies, riding back, calling us into repentance and holding out before us deliverance and salvation, reforming us as a people with soft hearts worshiping him. Now, like in the story, Christ rides into all of our wheat fields where we work, busy about our daily business, the God of the universe calling us back into relationship, offering us this victory, resurrection, new life, salvation over our hard hearts. When people hear that story of the gospel, like Israel, many will worship at the news. Many will hear what Christ has done and will want to participate in it. Many will cry and marvel at the sacrifice of what Christ had done. But let me be clear. Very few people, when they hear this news of Christ, will repent. Few will recognize and accept that Christ's sacrifice is the realization that I am the one who put him there in the first place. This is one of the most important points to get from this story. The ark was only found because it had been lost. And it was only lost because of what Israel had done. Christ only offers us salvation because we need it, because we're the ones who put him there in the first place. Death, consequences of these hardened hearts. To receive Christ is at the heart of everything we do and believe, repentance. You want to see God's glory, as we talked about in so much detail last week. You really want to experience what God's glory looks like in your life. Learn to live a life of repentance. You want to understand how God is working salvation, doing things in this world around you, how God is using you and pulling you in to participate in salvation. Live a life of repentance. You want to actually worship more than just sort of a religious activity, more than just a duty. You really want to know what it is to worship God and learn to live a life of repentance. The sacrifice that God is looking for is a broken, soft, contrite spirit, is the way that David puts it. 
we're going to close in prayer. Uh, next week, we're going to spend time with Samuel as he does this. He leads Israel into repentance. My goal for this week is pretty small. Uh, if we've done nothing else but say, maybe I've not taken repentance as seriously as I should, then we've done enough. Next week, we get to look at what it actually looks like, because this seems to be the big mistake that Israel misses. I can't just come in here and worship and go on about my business. To worship God, to experience his glory, is to have my heart and my life broken, and to come to him repentant. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to worship.